0: are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job, and tonight we're looking at chapter 28 As you can see, we're not going through every chapter, hitting, as it were, the highlights. So tonight we're looking at chapter 8, and you'll find that on page 435 of the Pew Bible. Job 28, hear the word of God. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore, in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me, and the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death, say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Job, you'll remember, was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was not only married with ten children, but he was extremely wealthy Of all the people of the East, Job was the greatest and the most prosperous. Unknown to him, the devil challenged the grace of God in the life of Job. He said the equivalent of he's in it only for the benefits. He's faithful only because he prospers. So the Lord permitted Satan to assault Job and to afflict him severely. He lost his children his flocks, his herds, his servants, his reputation, and we're told at the end of chapter one that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Well, then the devil struck him with sores and his wife said, curse God and die. But then still at the end of chapter two, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Three so-called comforters arrived hoping to help their grieving and afflicted friend. They were conservative, orthodox, but wrong in their application of truth. Seeing Job's suffering, they concluded that he was hiding unconfessed sin. Their view of God's government was shallow and simple to the extreme. In effect, they say, if you prosper, you're living right, and if you suffer, you're living in sin. And it's as simple as that. So they accused Job of living in sin and hiding surreptitious iniquity. Round and round they went, speech after speech, debating the issue, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, wrongly accusing him of unrepentant sin. Job maintaining his integrity while suffering terrible afflictions and deep grief. And he's confused. The calamities that hit all at once have baffled him. It seems as if God is angry, but he cannot, for the sake of him, understand why God would be. Job has been faithful in worship and service and devotion and loving his neighbor, and God himself had described Job as a blameless and upright man. So in the midst of all these heated discussions, he's asking the question, why? Chapter 3, why did I not die at birth? Chapter 7, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Chapter 13, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Why? And to these questions, Job never receives an answer, at least in this book. And yet God will address him and lead him to a deeper grasp of his sovereignty. The finite human understanding cannot possibly comprehend God. The Lord will expand Job's recognition of what sovereignty actually means. And the ways of providence are mysterious. Often they seem to contradict God's word. The wicked prosper rather than experiencing judgment in this life. The godly suffer. They endure poverty and affliction and disgrace and bereavement. So divine judgments in this world often seem to go against his divine and inspired word. And the question is, why? And to that question, people don't usually receive an answer. We just don't know why some on earth are punished while others are not. Deuteronomy 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And the answer to why is a secret thing. Job had no idea why he was overtaken all at once by these catastrophes, but his perseverance and suffering shows that God's grace is sufficient. The devil had thrown down the gauntlet, had challenged the Lord about Job. As I said, he would say he's not, li- he's not a living monument of your grace, but he's a selfish mercenary. And out of hatred for God, Satan had wanted to sift Job like wheat. Should he succeed, the Lord's glory would have been tarnished before the host of heaven. And yet God is able to preserve and to support his children even under the worst afflictions. That's where his glory seems to shine brightest among human beings. It's not on the mountaintop. It's in the valley that grace glistens most. And so often the why question is the one which a sufferer wants answered. Why me? Why this? Why at this time? Why in this way? Why, why, why? And as with Job, so with us, that's the question that's not answered. Nestled in the midst of these speeches, this chapter teaches an important lesson. We learn so often the right question to ask is not why, but rather who. Who is it that decrees all things? Who is it that brought me into being and numbered the days of my life even before one of them came to pass? Who is it that has promised to work all things together for good? Because you see, if we can't understand what he does, at least we can believe who he is and what he says. He is sovereign and he's good, he's faithful and true, and God is worthy of our trust. And as Job learns, finite creatures cannot possibly fathom the purpose of an infinite God, but we can put our confidence in him. So we come to Job 28, which is a lengthy poem that many believe is intended as an interlude. There have been several cycles of passionate speeches and debate And all of a sudden, we encounter this calm, serene, contemplative poem. And it seems to come out of nowhere. It's ascribed to no one. It might be Job. We're not sure. It's very unlike the rest of the book, as the author philosophizes about wisdom. There are no accusations, no complaints, no questions, no responses. It's addressed to nobody in particular. There's no indication who's speaking. And there is no apparent connection with the speeches that precede, although I think that there is. It seems to give a pause for us to muse about and to ponder over the idea of wisdom. Where is wisdom to be found? How do we obtain it? What's involved in it? In his first accusatory speech, you may remember how Zophar had hoped that Job would find the answer. In chapter 11, he says, Oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. And he wished that Job would come to his senses and repent of his unconfessed sin. But Zophar was the one in need of wisdom because Job, as we'll see, was already wise. So the chapter begins with a poetic description of the mining industry, It refers to a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine, both copper, iron, or excavated as man searches for them in the depths of the earth. And how industriously man seeks for the precious metals of the planet. We're reminded of the aim of the mining industry, which is to find things of value. Silver, gold, iron, copper, the ore hidden deep in the globe that are precious metals that we all consider of great value. There are sapphires and dust of gold that can make a man rich. And such costly and time-consuming searches is, are validated by the value of the treasure. And at the same time, the poetic description highlights the difficulty of the search. The quest leads men into the gloom and deep darkness of the minds. These are lonely, isolated places that not even animals venture there. And so hidden treasure is beyond the falcon's eye to see, the keenest of all vision. And not even the king of the forest has found it because the lion has not passed over it. Man overturns the mountains and cuts out the channels in the rocks. And with great effort and expense, he goes to unearth the riches. And I think what's intended here is to help us appreciate the nature of Job's search for wisdom. Wisdom is of such surpassing value that it's well worth the search. But like mining precious metals, it's extremely difficult to find. That is to say, wisdom is very hard to find, yet it's well worth the finding. Job has been searching for wisdom. He's been seeking answers to his questions. Why do believers suffer? And why do sinners prosper? And why am I afflicted? His quest for wisdom is noble. It's a valuable thing for which he searches. And just as the miner descends to the deep, dark places, so Job has descended into misery. He lost everything. Including his health. And he's entered the deep, dark place of suffering. And it's been a lonely search. And it's a very scary place for him to be. But it's worth the effort. As the miner risks the danger and the hardship because of the supreme value of the metals, Job endures danger and hardship for something that's far more valuable than gold or silver. Because wisdom is a precious thing. It's to be regarded as of the utmost worth. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, we read, and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit better than gold. This is why the costly, painful, lonely search is utterly worth it. So valuable is wisdom that almost any price is worth paying for it. Well, then the second section of the poem seeks to answer the question where wisdom can be found. Its value is so high that even man doesn't know its worth. And according to Solomon in Proverbs 3, by wisdom, God founded the earth. In wisdom, God created the universe with its sun and the moon and the stars. And all the creatures that he made are according to his infinite wisdom. And of course, we now know that Jesus Christ himself is divine wisdom. Christ, Paul says, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And through the eternal son, everything was made and nothing was made without him. And Jesus Christ now is wisdom incarnate. And so true wisdom cannot be found anywhere else but in the Lord Jesus The deep says it's not in me, according to verse 14. And the sea says it's not with me. And note how it's contrasted with some of the most valuable items on earth. It's worth more than the gold of Ophir, precious onyx, or sapphire. Gold, glass, jewels can't be exchanged for it. Not even the topaz of Ethiopia or the purest gold equals it. Wisdom is of infinite value. So Job once again raises the crucial question he posed earlier in verse 12. In verse 20, he says, From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from man. It's concealed from birds. It's not even seen by death and Abaddon. Abaddon is that utterly dismal, destructive, dreadful world of death and darkness. So you can go to the depths of creation. You can go to the place of the dead and you're not going to find it. Wisdom is a mystery. It's almost impossible to be found. So here's the problem. We must find wisdom, but we cannot find wisdom. (laughs) Which leads us to the third section. It points to the one who knows where it's found. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. The omniscient, sovereign God sees everything under the heavens. He controls the wind. He measures the seas. He directs the rain. He rules the lightning and the thunder. He oversees and sits upon his throne over Ukraine. All of it is under his sovereign control. He's the one who established wisdom, and he's the one who has it. And in fact, he himself is wisdom and truth. And in Jesus, he becomes visible which leads us to the postscript that we find at the conclusion of this poem. Last verse, God said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So Job thought that wisdom would enable him to answer the question, why? But here he learns that he had been asking the wrong question. Don't ask why, ask who. Don't seek for wisdom as an end in itself. If you wish to be a wise man or a wise woman, fear the Lord and turn away from evil, which, strikingly, is the description of Job that we find in chapter 1. Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? you see what he's saying? Job's already wise. He's already found it. Throughout his travail, he had the very thing that he'd been looking for. He may not be able to answer or figure out his suffering, but he fears the Lord. He turns away from evil. He's living in wisdom. So it's not answering the question why. It's not an end in itself. Rather, it is a byproduct of knowing God. If we would be wise, we must seek this knowledge like hidden treasure. Ultimately, a wise person is the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer may not have all the answers, but he knows the God who has them. The Lord knows all things, and knowing him, we're led to turn away from evil. That's wisdom. This was the same conclusion that Solomon drew after all of his investigations. He said, the end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So if you and I would be people of wisdom, we need to follow the example of Job. He illustrates for us how a believer is able to cope in a fallen world, a sin-cursed world. The losses and the catastrophes that he suffered were riddles that he could not solve. But true wisdom does not consist in solving all the riddles of life. That's what Job thought he needed as he struggled to make sense of his suffering. But there was far more to Job's difficulties than he could ever imagine. So it was not wisdom in the abstract that he needed, but what he needed was God. He must look to the one who knows everything and who is everywhere present. Job must look to the only one who is able to interpret all things, because his suffering can be rightly understood only from a divine perspective. God alone is truly wise, and he alone is able to answer all questions. So if a man is to be wise, he must know God. He must acknowledge God. He must trust God. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I agree with Gerstner, who says that that's a slight mistranslation of the text. The translation there in Psalm 14 verse one makes it seem as if atheism is the fool's folly. And that is foolish. But in the original, it says simply, No God. The there is is not there. The fool says in his heart, No God. He knows there's a God. He cannot escape the fact that God exists. The evidence is overwhelming. His own conscience tells him that God is there. So in his mind, he's able to see God's handiwork. He can perceive his glory even in his own being. But in his heart... He doesn't want God. He doesn't love God. He will not submit to God. No God. No God for me. He's there, but I don't want any part of him. I hate his laws. I despise his threats. I reject his offers of free grace. I will not fear him. I will not turn away from my evil. I refuse to submit to his rule. And that, my friends, is the fool. He knows the truth. He knows that God exists, and it leaves him inexcusable. So it's not a problem of ignorance. The problem is he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. In his heart, he says, no God for me. I will not have him as my God. And that is the fool. True wisdom is to acknowledge God, to be the only true God and our God. The fear of the Lord, says the psalmist, is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have a good understanding. It begins with the fear of the Lord, not slavish, but filial, reverence. It's accompanied by the love and the joy and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It expresses itself visibly in the avoidance of evil, repentance, Jesus as the second Adam resisted every temptation from the devil in the desert and from that time then Jesus came and he began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so we resist temptation because it grieves to, it grieves us to displease our heavenly father servile fear may keep us from some sins a wolf can be scared away from the prey But the wolf's nature is left unchanged. In the right circumstances, he'll sin again. But filial fear, the fear of a child for his father, will keep us from sin as sin. From the heart, the son wants to please his dad. We may not have all knowledge. We may not be able to answer all the questions. But the unlearned saint is far more wise than a learned unbeliever. As one Puritan put it, a blunt iron that is red hot pierces metal far faster than a sharp tool that is cold. The indwelling Holy Spirit enables us to fear God from the heart. We hold him in the highest esteem. We have the most reverent affection for him. And that's the fear of God that was in Jesus. That's the fear of God that was in Job. And Lord willing, that's the fear of God that will be in each one of us. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of this amazing servant. We know that he was a sinful man, but he was a sincere believer, and your grace was sufficient to sustain him through the most difficult trials. And we're grateful to see how you preserved this man of God when Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. We pray that you'll help us do the very same thing, that we would fear you with filial fear, turn away from evil, and seek first the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, To connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.